Let's ask God to help us understand his word. Heavenly Father, as you have given us uh, your word through your spirit, we pray now that we would know the work of your spirit in our own hearts, helping us to receive this as the word of God, helping us to understand and believe it. And Father, we pray that through the teaching of your word we would trust Jesus for life and we would grow in our understanding of his will, the good life he calls us to. And we pray that you would help me speak your word truthfully and clearly as I ought. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We need help. Hopefully that's not a surprise to you. Uh, Hopefully uh, you have long ago abandoned any illusion of self-sufficiency. We need help. We're such frail creatures and there's just so much that's outside of our control. Uh, When I started to think about this, it didn't take me long to get a long list of things I know I need help with or I've needed help with in the past and I suspect it wouldn't take you long to get a similar kind of list. Just think about it. You know, from time to time, many of us need help just with the day-to-day stuff of life. For example, finding a place to live. You know, the next rental or a suitable place to buy can seem so random. So many places on the market which will be possible, which would be best. And, you know, you might commit, you know, nothing about housemates or neighbours. Need help. Oh, then, if you have children, there's the nurturing of our children, promoting their well-being, providing for them, and often that weighs heavily on us, doesn't it? We want them to be safe, strong and stable, but there's so much we can't control. Their genetic inheritance and its expression for a start. Oh, and you can't control who their first teacher will be or who they'll meet at school, and our responsibility is so constant, isn't it? We need help to be a consistent example to them. Oh, and sometimes we need help with our emotions, don't we? Controlling our anger, dealing with our fears, living with the aching loneliness of grief. Oh, we need help with our faith too, don't we? Sometimes our spiritual life can seem so dry that trying to pray is like trying to chew sawdust and you just want to get that taste out of your mouth and replace it with a taste of joy. Often we need help with knowing what the right thing to do is, the right way to respond, because life just confronts us with a perplexing complexity. Oh, and we all need help with the day of our death, to be unafraid, to die and not be held in death forever. We need help. But what kind of help? Because there's lots of helps around, isn't there? I mean, do we need the help of the bureaucratic queue where you make a mistake and you go back to the end of the queue? You know, the help you have to qualify for by jumping through all the hoops so that you exhaust yourself in seeking it. Or is it the help of the condescendingly superior who just can't understand why you need help and... whose frustration at your repeated foolishness just makes them impatient and dismissive? Oh, is it the help of the overwhelmed who resent you adding to their load by seeking help? Do we need the help that can make us reluctant to find help, the help that's looking for reasons to refuse help, the help that comes from those ill-equipped to provide it, the help that actually harms because it's given in ignorance and malice? Do we need the help that comes too late? We need help. 
But we need the right kind of help, don't we? And we need it at the right time. And God's word says there is help available for believers in Jesus who trust that he died for their sins and has risen again for those who hold fast to confessing Jesus as son. God's word says there is help from someone who is able, from someone who cares. Help with what we really need. Help that comes at the right time. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Often, you know, when we're going through the Bible, we, we usually start with the teaching and then work through to the application, you know, what we ought to do or think or believe. But in our passage, it's actually the reverse. The author starts with the application with what God says we should be doing and then he goes on to the teaching that supports it in his teaching about Jesus as our high priest in chapter 5, 1 to 10. So, what does God say we should be doing? Well, if you're a believer in Jesus, God is saying to you here that you should live a life where you hold on to your confession of Jesus and draw near with confidence to what he calls the throne of grace for timely help. Now, the throne of grace is the throne of the Almighty God. But calling God's throne the throne of grace is assuring believers in Jesus that even though, as we saw last week, end of Hebrews 4, that God sees all things, that nothing is hidden from him, nothing in our lives is hidden from him. This phrase, the throne of grace, assures believers that the rule of the Almighty and Holy God will be for them a source not of judgment, but grace of undeserved, unwavering, unearned kindness. Because God's throne is now for believers a throne of grace, we're told what believers will find when they approach God trusting Jesus. They will receive mercy, not the fault-finding and condemnation that you might know you deserve for the foolish or faithless actions that's landed you in trouble, not criticism of your weakness and frailty that you might fear. No, mercy, generous pardon, Warm compassion, where you are shown, where you receive what you don't deserve. Mercy that welcomes the failed rebel, that restores the outcast to a place at the table, that heals the wounded. And you will also find grace, undeserved, unearned kindness. The favour of one who's interested in and well disposed towards you, who's seeking your best, who will be for you not against you. And what will be the outcome of that mercy and grace? Well, it says help in time of need, a phrase that stresses that the help we receive will be timely, that we'll get help when we need it. So what kind of help will those who draw near to the almighty, holy God, trusting in Christ, find? They'll find the right help at the right time, for it is the help of the living God. Now, 
This is not promising you the help you might be specifying in your prayers or promising you help at the time you're demanding it should arrive. No, this is promising you something better than that. This is telling you to come simply with your need to God, not with your solutions. And you will receive mercy and grace, help that springs from his kindness, help that is the help of the almighty God, help from the one who knows all, who knows you better than you know yourself, and so be the help that he knows you really need, arriving at the time he knows you really need it. You know, some people go to the doctor, you know, and instead of telling the doctor their symptoms and seeking their professional advice, well, they tell her the diagnosis. They found it on Google and they prescribe their own treatment. And you're probably thinking, why did they ever bother? And the better the doctor is, the stupider that is as a strategy. And I'm telling you that because some people treat God in exactly the same way. They come telling him what the problem is and how God ought to deal with it. And then they are disappointed when God doesn't agree with them and do what they think he should. That's foolish too. Here you're being invited to come with your need to the almighty, all-knowing God, and you're assured of something better than getting what you tell you tell God he ought to do. You're assured that you'll find mercy and grace, mercy and grace that you can be sure will give you from God the right help at the right time, his help at his time. And we are told, if we are believers, to come confidently, boldly. Why should we be confident? I mean, let's face it, we are sinful. We don't love God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength or love our neighbours as ourselves, not all the time. And we are unimportant. God is holy, he's the God of the whole universe. Well, the author gives us two reasons why we can be confident in verses 14 to 15. Firstly, he says, we can come confidently because Jesus is the Son of God, the Son who has passed through the heavens and sat down at God's right hand because his work has been accepted. And that means Jesus, the Son, well, is our high priest who is there in the presence of God already, there already, our mediator, the one who can take our concerns to God. He has access, permanent access, to the one who has all power and authority. He is always accepted in God's presence. He is always heard as he intercedes on our behalf. And secondly, we're sure that this high priest knows us knows what it is to be like us. He's someone who can sympathise with our weaknesses. You see, we could fear that now Jesus is exalted, gone into heaven, that he's forgotten what it's like to be human, that he's become distant, aloof, disinterested. But scripture assures us this is not the case. The one who's at the Father's right hand sympathises with our Weaknesses And our weaknesses embraces our physical, moral, intellectual, emotional weaknesses, the whole range 
of our human frailty. And so the exalted Lord, our high priest, can sympathise with the exhaustion of illness, sympathise with our lack of the necessary knowledge or wisdom to find our way, sympathise with the difficulty we have in mastering strong emotion. He doesn't despise our weakness. And this sympathy is more than just feeling for us. Yes, he feels with us. He has a common feeling for our struggles. But to sympathise is also to engage with our plight, our circumstances, and to act for us. And Jesus can sympathise, can identify with us to help because he has been tested as we are in every respect, yet without sin. So he knows what we are going through because in his flesh, in his humanity, he's also experienced such testing and tempting, the test, tempting that comes from our testing, the same testing as we experience. Now that's not to say the specific details of Jesus' testing or tempting are the same as ours. So Jesus, for example, was not tempted to look at porn on his mobile phone. No, spare that. And he wasn't tempted to covet Nike sneakers or a neighbour's beach house or whatever. The form of the tempting is different, but the substance of the tempting is the same. You see, what's at the heart of being tempted to lust after someone or to covet what they possess? Well, what's at the heart of it is to believe that disobeying God will make me happy will fulfil me. It's to think that loving myself and doing what pleases me rather than loving God and doing what he says is the way to be genuinely human, to fulfil myself, to be all that I could be. It's to rely on myself and my judgement and not God's. Now Jesus knew that tempting simply by being human. He lived in the same relationships we have. He could compare himself to others. He had the same physical appetites, the same aesthetic sense, the same intellectual questing that Adam and Eve knew, oh, and that we have. He was tested. He was tested throughout his life, and in that testing he was tempted, just as we are. So take, for example, his temptations in the wilderness. There Jesus knew hunger, didn't he? Forty days, physical appetite. And he was tempted to take matters into his own hands, turn these stones into bread, tempted to misuse the selfish ends, the power entrusted to him to satisfy his appetite, taking his guidance and direction just from himself. Oh, he's also tempted, wasn't he, to take a shortcut to avoid pain. Throw yourself down. Put God to the test. Tell God what to do. Make yourself in charge. Oh, and he was tempted, wasn't he? To be what he was born to be without cost. All these kingdoms I'll give you if you'll worship me. He was tempted to fulfil his potential simply by worshipping another God. Jesus was tested just like us. But he never failed in his testing. He was without sin. And you don't need to fail, do you, to be really tested? In fact, it's the one who perseveres in faithfulness 
who knows the full power of temptation, who feels its full force. And you don't need to have a sinful nature to be really tested either, do you? Adam in the garden was fully human and without sin, and he was tempted. Jesus, truly and fully human, knows what we are going through when we are tested. And so he also knows the help we need to endure in our weakness. Because Jesus, our high priest, has gone into heaven and because in heaven he sympathises with our weaknesses, we should be confident of mercy and grace, confident of timely help as we draw near to God through him. And so if you're a believer in Jesus, think for a moment. Do you live with that confidence? Do you act on that confidence? You know, the confidence that you can come to the just and holy God who knows every detail of your life. Come with whatever you are being tested and tried in and find not condemnation and rejection, but mercy and grace. Come with whatever your need is and find mercy and grace. Trusting Jesus, are you confident that you will receive the right help at the right time? Do you know, sometimes I hear people discount prayer. You know, prayer for them is what you do when you can actually really do nothing. Well, that is just faithless and impoverishing. Christian prayer is being confident of being heard by the Almighty God. That's right, heard by him, knowing he is committed to you, committed himself to show you mercy and grace and to help. It is the best thing you can do. Oh, and sometimes I meet believers who pray and then fret, compound their problems by becoming more and more anxious, as if God didn't mean what he said, as if God having given his son for them, has ceased now to be merciful and gracious when he has invited them to come to him. So trusting in Jesus, do you live confident that as you turn to him, as you turn to your father, you will receive the right help at the right time? But central to our assurance of, of timely help is our conviction Jesus is our great high priest. And to grow in our conviction, we actually need to grow in understanding of what that means. Now, our author has already declared that Jesus is the high priest. He's sown the seed of this identity back in chapter 2. But that wasn't much help to us, really, because we have trouble with this idea because most of us don't know much about high priests and their role. But let me tell you, our trouble with this identification of Jesus as high priest is nothing compared to the trouble the first hearers had with this idea. And they had trouble not because of their ignorance, but because they actually knew about priests and what a high priest was. You see, they knew that a high priest had to be a descendant of Aaron. The first high priest had to be specially consecrated in a ceremony prescribed in the law of Moses to fulfil that role. And they knew that the high priest's role was to sacrifice animals for which the priest needed an altar and special clothes and a special place like a temple. And they also knew 
Well, Jesus had none of that. He was no descendant of Aaron. As far as I knew, he'd never made any sacrifice in any temple. In fact, while the high priest had the position of greatest honour amongst the Jews, from what they knew, Jesus had actually occupied the position of greatest humiliation, killed on a Roman cross, killed by Gentiles. So calling Jesus high priest made no sense to them. So the author's got to justify his identification of Jesus as high priest. And he does that by pointing out to his readers what is true of every high priest and then showing how Jesus is equipped to be high priest, both by his appointment by God and his personal qualifications for that role. So he starts in verse 1 with the priest's job description. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. And so he says the priest's job, the high priest's job, is to act as a mediator between humanity and God to ensure that what God requires to be done by people so that he can live amongst his people is done. In particular, he says, his job is to offer gifts and sacrifices and he focuses amongst the many kinds of sacrifices on the sacrifice that deals with sin. So the priest was particularly to turn aside God's wrath from people's sin by offering the sacrifices God had commanded. And then in verses 2 and 3, he enlarges on the priest's personal qualifications for the role. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. The high priest had to be human, capable of identifying with those he represented. He was not to be high-handed, but to act gently towards those who were ignorant and strained. And in the case of the high priest from Aaron's line, they could because they shared the same weakness. This was brought home to the priest by the requirement both at ordination and the Day of Atonement to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. The priest had to be personally qualified, you see, to help sinners. And to fulfil this role, he had to be appointed by God, verse 4. No one takes this honour for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. The priesthood was God's provision, and the initiative in relating to God rested with God. Only the priest appointed by God could act as mediator, could make the sacrifices provided by God for dealing with sin. Now, our author's first audience when they heard this, would have been nodding in agreement, saying, yes, yes, that's true, that's got to be true of every high priest. So, says our author, let's think now about Jesus. You see, he fits the bill. What's true of every priest, he says to his audience, I'm now going to show you is true of Jesus. Oh, but you'll also see that his priesthood is so much better. So he says, let's start with how Jesus comes to this role, his appointment by God. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever 
after the order of Melchizedek. Now our author quotes Psalm 2 and then Psalm 110 to show that it's God who has appointed Jesus as priest. Uh, The gospel that they had believed, the gospel the original uh, recipients had believed, declared Jesus to be the Christ, the one spoken of in Psalm 2, the one to whom the rule of the nations was entrusted, the one declared by God to be his son. And our author has already quoted Psalm 2, drawn it to their attention back in chapter 1. Well, he says, if Jesus is the son, and that is the Christian starting point, then he is also high priest. And let me show you, he says, how you can be sure of that. Turn with me in your Bibles to another psalm, he says. That's anachronistic, of course, and it would have been dangerous for them to unroll the scrolls if it was packed. But, you know, let's, he says, turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 110. Right. Well, he's already quoted Psalm 110 back in chapter 1, and he actually quoted the first verse. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now he says this psalm, speaking of the one to whom God will give the rule over all, well that's speaking of the Christ, isn't it? We can all agree about that. This psalm is speaking of the Christ, the Son. Well he says, go down to verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In being appointed son, Jesus is also appointed priest, a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Now, order doesn't refer to hereditary succession from Melchizedek. It speaks of the type, the kind of Jesus' priesthood. It will be like Melchizedek's, as our author will show us in chapter 7. But for now, it's enough to note that in being exalted as the Son, exalted to the Father's right hand, Jesus has also been appointed by God to be high priest. And this is the task for which he has been personally qualified by his life on earth, particularly by his sufferings. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus was qualified to act as our high priest, as our mediator, by his life of dependent faithfulness on earth, seeing in his constant prayer. In the days of his flesh, he's speaking of his earthly life. As a true human, he lived dependent on God, He didn't offer like other priests a sacrifice for sins. He didn't need to. No, he offered prayers and supplications. And in offering these, he offered up himself to do the Father's will. That happened throughout his life. But it actually climaxes, doesn't it, in Jesus' testing in the garden. The mention of loud cries and tears, an indication of the intensity of Jesus' testing, is, is, uh, is, it takes our minds to the Garden of Gethsemane 
You see, his testing there was intense. You see, verse 38, Jesus says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. It was intense because to be human is to want to live. It's to want to shun pain and death. Jesus was tested. In the context of the garden, which was the outcome of Jesus' deliberate decision to go to Jerusalem to die, it does seem strange, however, doesn't it, to speak of God as the one who could save him from death because we know the outcome of his prayer in the garden. It was the outcome Jesus himself had anticipated the day he set his feet towards Jerusalem. He said he was going up to die and he went from the garden to die on the cross. But the text of Hebrews doesn't say that Jesus was asking not to die. He was actually asking, wasn't he? After he said, let this cup pass from me, he said, not my will, but yours be done. He was asking for God's will to be done. What we're actually told here in Hebrews is the identity of the God to whom he was praying, in whom he trusted, the one who could save him from death. And it says he was heard. He was rescued not from the experience of dying, but from the realm, from the hold of death. Jesus was raised. He was heard for his reverence, his life of godly fear, his life lived to please God, his entrusting of his life itself into God's hands. And this life of obedience, of dependence on the will of his Father qualified him to be our high priest. It says, although the Son... And he is always the son. He was the son at birth, son at his baptism, son on the cross. He is the son. But although the son, he learnt obedience by what he suffered and thus was made perfect, <coughs> fitted, completely qualified to be high priest. The shame of the cross that disqualified him from this exalted position in the eyes of so many is, says our author, what actually qualifies him. That someone should learn through suffering was actually no surprise to the ancients. It was a commonplace saying amongst them to learn to suffer. Or as my gym master used to say, and I don't know when he studied the classics, when you're painting, you're training. Uh, that was his outlook on life. And it was the outlook of the ancient philosophers, to learn to suffer. And so the emphasis here is actually on what Jesus learnt from his suffering. And it says he learnt obedience. It's the learning of obedience that's qualified him to be high priest. But in, in what sense did Jesus learn obedience? And how does that qualify him to be our high priest? Well, the author is talking of the obedience that can only be learnt by the incarnate son. You see, you need to be human, to have a human body and soul to suffer. This obedience, can, this obedience that can only be learnt through suffering is the obedience of faith. For it's the obedience you practice where the only reason you keep on doing what God commands is because God has commanded it 
and you trust him. You see, some obedience to God's commands is easy for us. You know, where you agree with the command, where it suits your interests and tastes, where it makes sense to you and you can see how it'll improve things for you, well, doing what God says is easy. But then there is the obedience that comes from faith that you learn through suffering. You see, suffering never makes sense. It doesn't make sense. And in suffering, your whole body and soul cry out to stop, to remove yourself from the suffering, just as Jesus cried out to be spared from death. But Jesus did continue, didn't he? He said, not my will, but yours. He continued because it was the Father's will. He continued solely because it was commanded and he trusted the Father who had said in his word that he would exalt his obedient son. And it was this obedience, this obedience he could only have learned as the incarnate one in suffering that qualified him completely and finally to be our high priest to become the source of eternal salvation. Why? Well, some things I think in this life and in God's word you probably never fully understand, and I suspect this is one of them, but let me give you the beginnings of an answer. Why does the obedience of faith qualify Jesus to be our high priest? Well, firstly, it qualifies him to be son, the true king of God's creation. You see, Adam failed in the obedience of faith. He didn't trust the father where it meant denying himself equality with God. David failed in the obedience of faith. He didn't trust the father where it meant denying himself the fulfilment of his desire. Christ trusted and obeyed where it meant denying himself life itself and in trusting he was victorious you see Jesus could not be the man of Psalm 8 or the son of Psalm 2 without the obedience of faith for the true king must trust and obey God solely because he is God secondly the obedience of faith qualifies Jesus to be the unblemished sacrifice. Not only does it mean he is sinless, but in practising the obedience of faith, he offers himself freely on the cross. And the virtue of that sacrifice is in large part in its freedom, as much as it is in the person of the one who dies, because love is found in freedom. And this is loving God with all his heart, mind, soul and strength, being unblemished in his devotion to the Father. Oh, thirdly, the obedience of faith qualifies Jesus to be sympathetic to his people. For they are those who, next verse, obey him. It's in the obedience of faith that Jesus' disciples are tested every day as we take up our cross to follow him. And we know Jesus understands that because he has been tested in this to the uttermost. And the obedience of faith qualifies Jesus 
to be the pioneer of our salvation, the one to whom we can look, who's gone before us, and so the one who can encourage us to persevere in the face of our trials. And as the called and qualified high priest, Jesus fulfills the role of high priest. He deals with the sins of his people. He becomes the source, it says, of an eternal salvation. Salvation, yes, that's rescue from danger, but it's more. Eternal salvation is coming to share the life of God in the new heaven and the new earth. And so this salvation is not just temporary, a brief respite from trouble. This salvation is not something that you know you have to renew year after year like club membership. This salvation, this rescue is eternal. Jesus secures life, the life of God for his people, eternal life, something that will never be taken away from those who obey Jesus. And notice it says the source of eternal salvation to those who obey him. Faith and obedience to Jesus are inseparable in Hebrews. Faith includes, yes, an assent to the truth, saying yes to the facts of the gospel, Christ's death for our sin and his rising to life to reign at God's right hand, but faith is always more than mere assent to facts. It is a living trust, and that trust will always show itself in doing what Jesus says. But Christian faith is not unique in that, is it? Trust always involves acting on the word of the one trusted. So if I were to say to you, and this is purely hypothetical, don't show up, come to my house tomorrow at seven and we will have a good meal. Well, you would come if you trust me. You might, of course, have been wise to ask if Jane was doing the cooking first, but, but if you trusted me, you would come. And not coming, especially after repeated invitations, would be because you didn't trust me. Trust involves acting on the word of the one trusted. Faith and obedience, inseparable. Now, how Jesus becomes the source of eternal salvation, the sacrifice he makes to deal with sin once and for all, well, that will have to wait for chapters 7 to 10. But here he tells us Jesus does the job, and he does it better than any priest from Aaron's line. Jesus brings a better salvation because his is a better priesthood, a better covenant, a better sacrifice, because he is priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the author is longing to explain that to us about this. We have much to say, he says, but he has first to address an issue in the hearers, which we'll look at next week, and then he'll get back to this priesthood in chapter 7. Well, I started off saying we need help. Hopefully you know that. We need help in life and death. We need help to live. Help to live and not die. Help to live as God had intended us to, loving God and loving our neighbours. Help to live as followers of Jesus, those who trust and obey his Son. Who does God, the almighty, eternal, holy God, who does he help? Who can confidently rely on his help? How do you in your own heart complete that sentence, God helps those who? Who are good? 
who qualify for the help by getting the formula right? Who tried her? Who have bribed God to be interested in them by their long prayers or gifts? God helps those who? Well, the answer God's word gives in Hebrews is so much better than any of those, so much better than the world's. He helps those who hold fast to their confession of Jesus as the Son and rely on Jesus as their great high priest in the presence of God. Those who hold fast come to him confidently. That is, they rely on what Jesus has done, not on what they've done. They rely on Jesus' goodness, not their own. Yes, they rely on Jesus' obedience to their Father, not their own. And these who trust Jesus can draw near with confidence, expecting, certain of, relying on his mercy, that they will find mercy, that they will receive grace, and that they will be given timely help. So is that you? Is that your practice, to come confidently to the throne of grace? Is that your delight, a source of hope, comfort, thankfulness each day? If you're a believer in Jesus, it ought to be. Why continue anxious? Why continue fearful? Remember, Jesus' people are those who obey him. And Jesus says to you in his word, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that you can receive mercy and find grace and timely help. Help, the right help at the right time from the God who has shown you grace in his Son, who loves you in his Son, and who is almighty. Act on his word. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this good promise. And we pray that we would be those who hear and do not those who hear and forget. Give us such a grasp of what Jesus has done for us in his dying for our sin and rising. Give us such a grasp of his exalted glory in the presence of the Father. Give us such a conviction that he knows us, that he cares for us, that he feels for us who've turned back and put our trust in him, that we would bring all our needs and concerns to him, and not just ours, but those of our brothers and sisters, that we would bring those needs with confidence, knowing that from you we will receive not necessarily what we ask, but what we need, mercy, and grace, the mercy and grace that will give us the right help at the right time. Please move us to live and to pray as followers of Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.